Thank you, Jonathan and Matt, for your warm welcome here. Thank you, Edgefield Congregation. Uh, I had the joy with a number of other members of our church and worshiping with you about a year and a half ago when the Southern Baptist Convention was here in town. We appreciated that time. Uh, we pray for you all, and I'm sure that uh, this morning the church in Washington is praying for us as we gather here. We appreciate our partnership with you in the gospel. Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles, open up to the Old Testament. Let's go to the book of Exodus. Uh, you'll be very familiar with this book. Exodus begins with Moses' birth and calling in the first four chapters. Uh, then starting in chapter five, Moses obeys God by confronting the great Pharaoh of Egypt, demanding the release of the Israelites and declaring God's judgment on Pharaoh's arrogant refusals by announcing divine plagues. And then in our chapter that I want us to come to this morning, chapter 12, well before that, well in chapter 12 we have the 10th and final plague, really the climactic plague. Uh, leading to the surrender of Pharaoh to God's demand. So turning to, to Exodus chapter 12. You want to ask four questions of this chapter. In this culmination of the famous plagues of Egypt, where in chapter 11, the Lord had warned about this plague. Now here in chapter 12, it comes. Moses had warned Pharaoh, but Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites leave. So we want to ask four questions about this chapter. Number one, what is the Passover? Number two, what happens when you have no substitute? What happens when you have no substitute? Number three, what happens when you have a substitute? And number four, who remembers the Passover? Those are the four questions I want to organize our thoughts around this morning. We'll spend more time in the first one than the last three, so don't be nervous by the end of the first point. <laughs> I pray that as we study this chapter together, we will better understand Jesus' life and our own. First then, what is the Passover? Well, the answer, it is the benefit of God's passing over judging someone provided through a substitute. The benefit of God's passing over, judging someone, provided through a substitute. That is, that benefit is provided by means of a substitute. Let's begin reading it, verse one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. 
Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your house. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frames. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. 
Friends, let me just stop there. There's so much we could say. Uh, In the first several verses, the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, when the feast is to be, he tells them it's to be celebrated family by family. Each family is to sacrifice a one-year-old lamb without defect. You'll notice he says there in verse five. So at one specific time, all the children of Israel are to slaughter them. And they are to take some of the blood and place it on the sides and tops of the door frames. Verse eight, that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. And then in verse nine, some very specific instruction is given which many have wondered about. Look there at verse nine. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Kids, why do you think the Lord gave that instruction? I'm asking you to yell out answers. Just in your own brain, yell out answers. Why do you think the Lord would give that instruction? Maybe it's something health-related. Perhaps eating raw meat was prohibited here to distinguish what the Israelites were doing from some pagan festivals in which sacrificial meat was eaten raw, including the blood. Because the idea is that you would get the power of the sacrificed animal by eating its blood and consuming its blood. So what the Lord is doing is distinguishing the kind of sacrifice that he's requiring. The Lord was not giving them magical powers of the slain victim. Rather, he was teaching them about some spiritual realities like the connection of sin and death and preparing them for the planned Messiah by teaching them some of the deep ways of God. They wouldn't have before them on their festival table a stew, but a whole lamb, clearly slain for them. Do you see some of the outlines of what God was teaching his ancient people even then? Then in verse 11, look down a couple more verses. In verse 11, we see that the Israelites were to eat in a hurry uh, and trembling with alarm at all that was going on, maybe in anticipation. Uh, This was a night of deliverance, their liberation, their, their redemption, their salvation. You know, Passover is the oldest of the Jewish festivals. It's sort of their founding festival. It's like their July 4th. It's the fixed time clearly in the Old Testament. It's the most fixed anything could be. And what is at the very center of it? A lamb without defect who dies as their substitute. That's at the center of their national identity. And this meal was to keep their need and God's provision always in mind. So did God intend the Passover lamb as a preview of Christ? Yes. Yes, I mean, if you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Paul says that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Christ is the only begotten son, the the, the seed of Abraham, and also the Passover lamb. The Last Supper was a Passover meal. So you and I need deliverance from bondage, from the fatal judgment of God, 
through the blood of the firstborn lamb without blemish. The Passover lamb was a substitute for sinners. So too is the lamb of God. God's people would be saved by a substitute. That's what God was teaching his people here as he instructs Moses about the Passover. Look at verse 12. The Lord is clearest about what he's doing there in verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Yahweh, the one true God, is the judge of all and is executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. That's what's happening that night. The ones in whom the Egyptians' hopes rested for the future were literally to be killed. And in such a way, there would be no natural explanation for it. This was to be a clearly divine statement. The Lord would show publicly that the Egyptians' gods were powerless to protect Egypt and even to protect the mightiest Egyptians. They could do nothing. That, by the way, may be why the animals were included in this fate. Because, you know, the Egyptian gods took the form of different animals. And certain animals were seen to represent certain gods. But here, these gods had more than met their match. And Yahweh was making that crystal clear. Look there in verse 13, the Lord explains his actions even more. He says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the blood is a sign of salvation to the Israelites. But notice, this is important to notice, lest you feel any creeping religious self-satisfaction and self-righteousness, notice that they too were obviously subject to God's wrath. It's not like all of the bad people are out there with no sacrificed lamb and no blood on their doorposts and all the good people are at home with the sacrificed lamb and the blood on the doorposts. No, friends, why do you think the lamb had to be sacrificed because the people inside that family and that warm family meal were not good because they too deserved God's judgment. That's why the blood was there. It was a sign of salvation. You see what's going on here deep in the story of the Bible. We see that the lamb becomes a substitute for the Israelite firstborn. And the application of its blood, the only way of salvation. So while there's no explicit mention in Exodus 12 of the lamb bearing the sins of many, to use Isaiah's language later, that is implicit in the lamb bearing the punishment for their sins. And then those who are marked by the lamb's blood being delivered from receiving the penalty that they justly deserved. You see how that follows. And so the death of the Passover lamb was laying down in the Israelites' mind that most basic vocabulary by which they were one day to understand the death of Jesus, the sinless lamb of God, the Messiah. 
In verses 14 to 20, the Lord instructs Moses about the Feast of Unleavened Bread by which they were to remember the results of the substitute. They're to memorialize forever the deliverance that God is about to perform for them in the Exodus. So Christian, what, what does this remind you of? It reminds you of the Lord's Supper. The, the, in, in fact, remember that Jesus' sacrifice was made in the Passover period, in the Passover festival. So that meal was made as an aid for the memory just like the Lord's Supper is. Because in remembering what God has done for us, we come to believe what he has promised he will do for us. Let me say that again. In remembering what God has done for us, we come to believe God in his word as he promises what he will do for us. You see how that works? It it works that way in your relationship with others. If they've been trustworthy in the past, you tend to believe more their statements about the future. That's why in verse 15, the person who we might think does something as insignificant as eating leavened bread in these days is treated so severely. Did you notice that? It says, must be cut off from Israel. Why is that? Because Beginning to not do this is beginning to forget the Lord's deliverance of his people and is to lead them to stop worshiping the Lord. To forget what the Lord has done is a kind of blasphemy. It's a kind of denial of God's goodness. If you look in verse 21, we see that Moses obeys the Lord in all of this. He instructs the elders of the Israelites about the Passover, and by so doing, he instructs them about their need for a substitute. The Lord would only bring death if it were deserved. Well, what had the firstborn done to deserve such death? Nothing specially. No, they stood for in the place of, on behalf of, you could almost say in a federal relationship with, the whole. They stood for the whole in the natural order of things. They stood for the strength of the people. They stood for their future hopes. The Israelites did not deserve God's deliverance. No, that was pure mercy, as were the instructions he gave them about a substitute. And the Lord wanted them to forever remember what he, in his grace and mercy, had done for them. And so, he gives them this meal, and then this special week to act as a reminder for them, to teach successive generations the truth about God and about God's kindness to them and to help them reflect on all that. Friends, isn't that what the Lord Jesus has done in giving his church baptism and the Lord's Supper? He's given us signs by which we are to remember what God has done for us in delivering us from our sins 
See what we read, we read here in verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. So we obey the commands of Christ as a way of passing the gospel message down to generations to come. So kids, if you've grown up in church, by the time you're 10, by the time you're 15, you've seen scores of baptisms, maybe hundreds. You've seen many times the Lord's Supper is celebrated. Each one of those is being done in part by all the adults in the room for you. We want you to see and understand God's goodness. And so just like you act things out in Sunday school sometimes, we do this in this very vivid way that Jesus himself, as the master pedagogue, gave us in order to teach and imprint this in your memory so that you will remember what the Lord has done. So if you're, if you're seven or eight, if you're like 12 or 13, you wanna make sure over lunch today, just go over with mom and dad again what baptism, what the Lord's Supper we just did today, what those things mean. Make sure you understand that because kids, we're doing that in part for you. Verses 26 and 27 is where we see this, this concern about the children. The Israelites were spared because the lamb was sacrificed. That's the story. And keeping this meal tells the people that. Then you see in verses 27, 28, the last two verses that I read to you, we see the response of the people to all this. Look, verse 27. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The two words used are really in parallel. They're really saying the same thing. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. This is a kind of repentance and faith. They did exactly what they should do. They stopped doing what they shouldn't do and they trusted the Lord. They believed the Lord. Very much like what we today are called to do. They killed the animal. They had the meal. They marked the doors. They stayed in their houses. Those are the basic instructions. This obedience was a placing of their confidence in this requirement by God for a substitutionary sacrifice for their redemption. My friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have found yourself in a very happy place. This is a great place for you to be. Great news for you to hear this morning. God is calling you to trust in him. He is the one who is to be revered and honored, feared and loved are the Bible verbs. Feared and loved. He is the one who has sent his son to pay a sacrifice, to pay the penalty for the burden, for the sins that all of us have committed who will turn and trust in him. I don't know what those words sound like on your ears. 
I would encourage you to find a human here who would talk to you about him. Help them to know, help you to know what that would mean in your own life. What does it mean that the Lord has done this? How can that ancient sacrifice of the Passover lamb, which points to the ancient sacrifice of the cross, how can that have anything to do with me? Friends, there is good news. You can be forgiven of all your sins by God and have a relationship with God unlike any you've ever known before. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him. Oh friend, turn from your sins and trust in Christ today. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb sacrificed for all who will be his people. The lamb without defect became our substitutionary sacrifice if we repent and believe. I love the way John Stott put it. The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. My contention is that substitution is not another theory or image to be set alongside the others, but rather the foundation of them all. Brothers and sisters, admire what God has done for us in Christ. Admire his mercy. Look at how he has provided a way back to himself a way that we could never have figured out, or even if we figured it out, we could never have provided or, or made for ourselves. Is God not kind? Brothers and sisters, do you not have reason to deeply in your soul rejoice in the kindness of God today? I think the younger you are as a Christian, the more you are astonished at the problem of evil. I think the older you get as a Christian, the more you're astonished at the goodness of God. You could almost call it the problem of goodness. When you understand that we are not good people and that God is a good God, why has he treated us in love as he has? Let us speak well of Jesus. Let us admire his exemplary life but let us remember that we have nothing from Jesus unless he is our substitute. Do not forget that. I don't know what Nashville churches are like, but in Washington, D.C., it is a city full of beautiful old church buildings in which the gospel of Jesus Christ I've preached to you this morning is denied verbally. They didn't. I met with a local pastor when I first got there. He was an atheist. He'd been in his church for 28 years. Didn't believe in God. Didn't believe Jesus was God. Didn't believe Jesus got up from the dead. But he kept all the religious symbols going, and the church had a good endowment, so it could keep going forever. Friend, he can be as unbelieving as he wants, but every time they have the Lord's Supper, it is proclaiming the truth about a sacrifice made by God in the presence of his people for God's mercy and love to be brought about. But somebody, I can just hear somebody saying, I, Mark, I don't, I don't really need a substitute. I've, I've not been that bad. 
I don't know if that'd even be fair. I mean, everything I need to help me, I can really get from just reading my Bible and taking up good principles from it or just my interior sense of right and wrong. Friend, the, the point of the Christian good news is not so small a thing as just to give us what we think we need or want. The good news is that God has found a way to satisfy his desire to love us and to be just and good at the same time. He is not about such a small thing ultimately as satisfying you. He is satisfying himself, his own goodness, his own love and mercy and justice and righteousness. That's what he's done by sending Jesus. Here in Exodus 12, we see that God would deliver us, not just as individuals, you'll notice, but as a, as a community. And he left us a communal act, a meal, to remind us of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for us. And he has called us together to, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, these of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So, what is the Passover? It is the benefit of God's passing over, judging someone, and that benefit is provided through a substitute. Three more questions more briefly. On to number two. What happens when you have no substitute? What happens when you have no substitute? Answer, you are not passed over. You are not passed over, but are judged. That's what we see in verses 29 to 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. You see what happened here. Judgment fell on the Egyptians while God's people also deserving God's judgment, were delivered. Not because they were inherently better or because their ethnicity protected them. There was no ethnic privilege. But because of the substitute, the Lord judged Egypt but passed over the sins of his people. In verse 29, his judgment of sinners is clear and terrible, from the highest in society to the lowest. The Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt. This was the decisive blow that gained the Israelites their freedom. Some have tried to suggest a natural explanation for this, like bubonic plague, but that does not explain the affliction only affecting the firstborn. This was clearly an act of divine judgment. God meant it to be clear that it was his action. Pharaoh understood. He grieved 
the penalty of God's judgment, and he sent the Israelites away. Look at verse 31. You can feel the emotion. Up, leave, go. See, Pharaoh's use of this abrupt imperative verbs, it shows something of his urgency. Friends, this was a terrible preview of the judgment that is coming on us all spiritually, ultimately. It reminds us of God's sovereignty, of his goodness, of our need for a savior. Do you see that? Do you see why if God is good, he would judge you? If not, pray that God would show you that today. That would be a very good gift for you to get on this Lord's day. Being convicted of your own sins is one of the best gifts you could ever be given. Because apart from knowing the truth about your own sin, you'll never know the truth about the Savior God has provided. You'll think he's done a lighter or smaller thing than he's really done. You may not understand him at all. But being convinced of your own sins, you come to know at the time when you are something of your need and you begin to see more of the provision of God. At the time, Egypt, of course, remember, was the most powerful empire on earth and yet national strength protects nobody from the judgment of God when it's time. I love what one 18-year-old preacher said in New York City 200 years ago. He was preaching a sermon there and he said, death serves all alike. As he deals with the poor, so he deals with the rich. Is not awed at the appearance of a proud palace, a numerous attendance, or a majestic countenance. Pulls a king out of his throne and summons him before the judgment seat of God with as few compliments and as little ceremony as he takes the poor man out of his cottage. Death is as rude with emperors as with beggars and handles one with as much gentleness as the other. Friends, Christ is the only Savior for rich or for poor, for great or for small, for young or for old. Admire all that God is giving us in his grace, that he's not giving us what we deserve. All that we have in Christ is a gift to us. That's why when we gather the beginning of each week, it's like Christmas morning times a million every week as we gather as God's people reminding ourselves of the great gifts that we've been given in Christ as we start each week afresh in the Lord's day together. This is what we wanna share with others. We're a community of people who are, know ourselves to be the justly damned and graciously forgiven. And we must be clear about judgment in order for our news to be good. I pray that you here at Edgefield will be faithful and fruitful in that as a congregation. So what happens when you have no substitute? You are not passed over, but you are judged. Third question, what happens when you have a substitute? Answer, you are passed over. What happens when you have a substitute? Answer, you are passed over. Look at the benefits that flow from the substitute. Look in chapter 12 at verse 33. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. 
the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Rome, from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went with them as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of the time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt on this night. All the Israelites are to keep vigil as honor to the Lord for generations to come. Friends, God not only passed over those protected by the sign of the substitute, but he additionally blessed them with a speedy exodus. And even with Egyptian gifts, look there in verses 37, 38, 39. We have the historical account of their deliverance. This really is the exodus. I know the whole book is called Exodus, but the exodus is really in chapter 12. And it's really not in all of chapter 12, it's just these three verses. You know where the Exodus is, it's chapter 12, verses 37, 38, 39. And you could say it's summarized in verse 51, just to be clear. This is the Exodus. They left Egypt completely, directly, no half measures. And then verses 40 to 42, we're called to remember this Passover. And that night, it just so happens was the 430th anniversary of the Israelites going down into Egypt. And God brings them out now in his own strength, having used Egypt as his stage to show the world something of his great power. Why put the Israelites in such a tough place? Because it would be a great stage to show the world that there was no earthly power that was equal to the creator God. Friends, I hope you're understanding something of the greatness of being delivered from the service of sin and from God's just charges against you. God is sovereign even over the rise and fall of nations and Christ is the deliverer he has provided for all who will trust in him. Both of these things we see so clearly in the story of the Exodus. So don't, don't let's live any longer as those who have not been delivered. Let's marvel at our salvation and thank God for it. As a church, I pray that you will celebrate your deliverance by God, not yourselves. Oh, there's this sick thing in some churches talking about positive thinking and self-image as if our hope really springs from ourselves. Friends, that's a satanic knockoff of the real gospel. The real gospel is about Jesus Christ and God's love for us in Christ. So I pray that you as a church will remain faithful in celebrating your deliverance by God, not yourselves. Rejoice in what God has done for his people. Let it ring through your songs and your prayers and your conversations with each other. So what happens when you have a substitute? You are passed over. Let's say that one all together. I'm gonna say, we'll do it responsibly. I'm gonna say, what happens when you have a substitute? And then let's all respond, you are passed over. What happens when you have a substitute? You are passed over. Praise the Lord. And if you're a believer, you are in that you. Okay, last question. Who remembers the Passover? Well, look at verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
These are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought may eat of it after you've circumcised him, but a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native born and to the alien living among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. So here the Lord instructs Moses about how to remind people about the Passover gained by the substitute. And God does this as he instructs Moses on who is to partake of the supper. The Lord seems to have a great concern about this. So just give it a few moments of attention. This meal is held in verse 46 inside one house, family by family. Why? I don't know. Maybe if it were outside, it'd be harder to control. People of the non-covenant community can more easily just slip by like a neighborhood barbecue. That detail there in verse 46, do not break any of the bones. Matt, that's one of my arguments against multiple services. I'm really serious. Do not break any of the bones. He told them to do that so that it would be presented as a whole on the table to remind them that they were part of one community. And of course, John tells us in John 19, 36 that on the cross, quite unusually for one crucified, none of Jesus' bones were broken. He points that out. They were not to break the substitute up and take it into smaller units. And so today the church community as a whole takes the Lord's Supper, not as individuals, as some private act of devotion, not in small groups or in family units. One minister reflected on the community we've been brought into by Christ's sacrifice. He said, Christ has bought, brought it to pass that those whom the Father has given him should be brought into the household of God, that he and his Father and his people should be as one society, one family, that the church should be, as it were, admitted into the society of the blessed Trinity. And did you notice from verse 48 that from the very beginning there was a way made to include non-Israelites? Sometimes people think of the Old Testament as very nationalistic. But if so, I think you're missing what's going on here. From the very beginning, it was set up to include non-Israelites. There were no social restrictions. There were no ethnic restrictions. Now, there was a seriousness restriction, but not an ethnic one. The word translated slave there in verse 44, I think is a little misleading. It's the word evid. Uh, it could very well be translated servant, any sort of worker. Uh, today we might call an employee or a hired hand. So the point of this meal was to include those who would define themselves as trusting in God and his promises and to exclude those who merely happened to be in the physical vicinity at the time but weren't really about trusting this God and his promises. They were not to be merely or primarily an ethnic community. All who would repent and believe would be included in the substitute then, and it's true about the substitute now. So, friend, ask yourself, what do you do to remember God's deliverances? Do you read the Bible? Do you reflect on his goodnesses? Do you study the history of his church and see his kindness stretch out across the ages? Do you get to know others and search out his mercy in the lives of fellow Christians? 
Do you reflect on your own life and record your own experiences somehow? Do you try to capture something of his amazing generosity and grace to you? Why would we so quickly ignore and forget even God's best gifts to us? I love what Spurgeon exhorted elderly saints with once in a talk he was giving on God's goodness. He said to the elderly saints among them, do not die, O ye gray heads. You have passed your threescore years and 10. Do not pass away from this earth with all those pleasant memories of God's loving kindness to be buried with you in your coffin, but let your children and your children's children know what the everlasting God did for you. What a good exhortation. As a congregation, you are called to be exclusive and inclusive. Exclusive only for those who have known God's love in Christ as members, but inclusive of as many of those as you can possibly include. So a Christian church is a community not defined by ethnicity, regardless of what may happen with various nations, struggles with racism, but no, by repentance and faith and by gratitude. Because brothers and sisters, you realize at this table, we are all foreigners. None of us are here by birthright, but only by the new birth. So who remembers the Passover? We do. Professor Giza Vermesh once asked, why was Jesus executed? Had he not been responsible for the fracas in the temple of Jerusalem at Passover time, when Jewish tradition expected the Messiah to reveal himself, very likely Jesus would have escaped with his life. Doing the wrong thing in the wrong place and in the wrong season resulted in the tragic death of Jesus on the Roman cross, close quote. That's the kind of stuff taught by people with PhDs in major universities. Trust your Sunday school teacher every time over people like that. People are paid to say this kind of stuff in major research universities. I was an agnostic, I went to Duke, I went to Cambridge. This is the kind of stuff that's taught. It's false. What your Sunday school teacher taught you when you were 10 is much more likely to be true. Just recall the great truths that we've been thinking of from Exodus chapter 12. Recall what God has said he was doing. To call this the wrong thing, that the wrong thing, how can we possibly consider Jesus coming and presenting himself as the one who was laying down his life as a ransom for many and doing so deliberately at the time of the Passover to use the rich imagery that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had designed from eternity past to help us understand what Christ was doing on the cross. How could we possibly consider that doing the wrong thing? Only with a tremendous amount of ignorance regardless of what degrees you may hold from what schools they may be. We can join with Christians from all ages in praising God for passing over our sins because of Christ. Penal, that is taking the penalty deserved. Penal substitution is no new idea. It is as old as the Passover. I finish by sharing with you the reflections of a Christian in the century after the New Testament was written as he was reflecting on these very truths. He said, when our iniquity had come to its full height, and it was clear beyond all mistaking that retribution in the form of punishment and death 
must be looked for. The hour arrived in which God had determined to make known from them then onwards his loving kindness and his power. How surpassing is the love and tenderness of God. In that hour, instead of hating us and rejecting us and remembering our wickednesses against us, he showed how long-suffering he is. He bore with us. And in pity, he took our sins upon himself and gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy for the wicked, the sinless for sinners, and the just for the unjust, the incorrupt for the corrupt, the immortal for the mortal. For was there indeed anything, anything except his righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins? In whom could we, in our lawlessness and ungodliness, have been made holy, but in the Son of God alone? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable working. Oh, benefits unhoped for, that the wickedness of multitudes should thus be hidden in the one holy, and the holiness of one should sanctify the countless wicked. Friends, that's us. Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice in this hope that we share with Christians in other churches here in Nashville, around this city. Lord, in other Christians elsewhere in this country and around this world today. Lord, in Christians down the ages. Oh, Lord, from this one who even wrote these words, we rejoice in the hope that we share in Christ. He is our only hope. Our hope is, in, is only in his blood shed for us. Thank you for passing over our sins because of the sacrifice of the sinless Lamb of God, our Passover. We pray in his name. Amen.